Oh, Lord, as we look around today, Lord, as I walked over from the mission home to the church before worship, Lord, I was just surprised by all the snow and just the beauty of it. Father, we are reminded in the midst of this snow, Lord, that you're creator. And Father, as we walk into the building, we see the decorations and again reminded that we're beginning to go through this season, Lord, of celebrating the birth of our Savior. Father, we ask God that today that you would remind us of, of the reason for this season as we talk. And Father, as we look at your word, Lord, that you would speak through me. And Father, that our hearts might be open to you, to your word. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name and for your glory, Father. Amen. Jesus. How do we consider him? Do we still think of him as a babe? Do we remember that he came in order to free us from the bondage of sin? I think there's probably no scholar that would not recognize that there is that there was is a historical figure named Jesus Christ that lived over two thousand years ago. I think all would recognize that. I think the problem, the conflict comes in today when we we recognize that he lived, he died on the cross, he died a horrible death on the cross, and that as God incarnate, he paid for our sins. People are willing to say that Jesus was a great man, a great prophet, a great teacher. But when it comes to recognizing him as God, the Savior of the world, that's where conflict comes in. If we look in the Gospels, we'll see that that was the same case back then. In the book of Luke, a couple instances, Jesus had just healed the paralyzed man who had four friends who brought him in. And after the healing, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers began thinking, who is this fellow who says he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. In Luke 7, after Jesus had been anointed by this woman who had a sinful past, he looked to her and said, your sins are forgiven. And people around said, who is this man? who even forgives sins. Christ, in talking with his disciples, said, Who do the people say I am? And they said to Christ, Some say you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. Or some prophet. And then Christ turned the question on them and said, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Messiah the Son of God. But today, as we look at the book of Matthew, chapter 1, there are so many different titles and names for Jesus Christ. We won't be able to, to get into all of them. We'll look at four. And I want us today to look at, at first, the Son of David, which is a Messianic title, uh, really pointing to the fact that he would be 
king of Israel. And it shows his humanity. Second is the son of God. And third is Jesus, the savior of the world. And fourth is Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the first chapter, beginning 1 through 17, we have a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to focus on these 17 verses. I want you to rest. I know that genealogies aren't something that we love. Um, they're, they're something that we tend to see as boring. And if we're honest, we say, these words are hard. These names are hard, uh, difficult to pronounce. Um, but there's a purpose behind genealogies. And in this genealogy, Jesus is seen as the son of David with a legal right to be king of Israel and the long-awaited Messiah. Again, I grew up in Alabama. And in Alabama, the men love hunting and fishing. And they'll spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on sporting equipment for their for the things, guns, they rent property, they belong to clubs, all their ammunition and all their guns. And oftentimes, they'll use a hunting dog. And they'll pay a lot of money for their dog. And they pay a lot if they have the genealogy. If they have that pedigree that says, this dog has predecessors that were champions. Same thing with cattle farmers and with horse uh, um, men who raise horses. That pedigree says it all. It makes it all worth it. In Chris's home area in Louisiana, there's an Indian tribe called the Cachada tribe. They have a very profitable casino. So much so that at one point, every member of the tribe earned eleven thousand dollars. Per quarter, eleven thousand per quarter. One problem: you had to have your genealogy. You had to prove that you were at least one eighth Kashada. You see, very, very important. Even in our last studies, we looked at the Book of Ezra in chapter two, I believe it was. There were priests who were unable to serve because they didn't have their pedigree. Pedigree, very, very important. And for the Jew, so much more so because uh, it, it provided who they were in life. Well, the first verse in, in, in Matthew 1 begins by giving Jesus the Messianic title, Son of David. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Later on, in verse 16, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So the first 17 verses in this chapter present Jesus' pedigree. Again, we're not going to focus on it a lot, but I want to just bring out just a few points here. If we look at the Gospels, they all have different themes Gospel of John is all about the deity of Jesus Christ. And you're probably not going to find a, 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 a paragraph that doesn't at least point toward Jesus being uh, God. In Matthew, Matthew's all about Christ being that 
king of Israel, that Messiah. So you'll find throughout the book of Matthew that there's always that mention of, of the kingship. Christ's birth also fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies. Um, but in particular, today I want to look at the fact that he fulfilled um, the Davidic covenant with David. For if you remember that God promised David that he would have um, his seed reign forever. In this passage, again, in this genealogy of Christ, Jesus is called the Christ at times. It's based on the, the translation, the anointed one, the Messiah, the person that the Jewish people have been waiting for, um, expecting him to come to deliver them, a monarch. And secondly, if you look at Jesus' uh, genealogy, you see there's some questionable people in the background. If you and I were to set up the genealogy for the Savior of the world, we probably wouldn't have uh, a man like uh, Abraham who, instead of waiting patiently on God for Sarah, his wife, to have a child, tried to use Hagar, his servant's uh, child. We all know that Abraham also lied twice as he tried to pass off his wife as his sister. You'll notice in the genealogy, if you look at it also, there were four women mentioned besides uh, Mary. And three of them were Gentile, and one was Gentile by birth, or rather by, um, by marriage. The other three by birth. In uh, each of these women, not all, not all of them, but they had some questionable background. One was a harlot, or had been a harlot. One played the harlot. One was involved in, a, in adultery. But if you see that, you look and you see that God, as he prepared for the Savior, for the Messiah, is all about the unworthy. It's all about those who are outside, those who were oppressed, those who were needy. Well, in summary, regarding the genealogy, it does several things. First, it shows Christ's humanity. Secondly, again, it confirms the Davidic covenant that David would have an heir. And third, it shows that he had the right pedigree to be king of Israel, the Christ, the Messiah. There's a popular belief among the Jewish people back then, as I mentioned earlier, that, that the Messiah would come riding on a white horse. Some say with a sword. But the whole point was that, that he would rule. And he would rule politically. He would, he would give the people of Israel freedom and independence and somehow they missed the fact that Messiah the Christ would come as a baby that he would suffer that he would die on the cross for the sins of the world Christ of course when he did come and when he um, was, was preaching there were people who wanted him to do just that and Christ rejected that Today, in our own culture as Americans, and I love America, don't get, don't get me wrong, but our culture has in some way worked to kind of pull together the American dream along with the idea of, of what it means to be a Christian. 
and, and we've, we've come to this idea that we can feel secure because we attend church, um, because we, uh, we made a decision, a profession of faith when we were a child, we were baptized, um, we vote based on our political persuasion, if we're a Democrat, because we vote Democrat, if we're a Republican, because we vote Republican, um, we have this idea almost that I'm an American and I'm a Christian. And there's a huge difference in there. Yes, in America we have this nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind our materialism. He would never call us to sacrifice. We have a Jesus who is just fine with nominal devotion and would never infringe on our comforts. We have a Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity as we live our Christian span on the American dream. I know of a pastor preaching with a prosperity gospel mindset who told his congregation that God did not want them to own a new Toyota. He wants them to own a new BMW. A culture has become so intermixed with Christianity that we have to be careful. Just as the Jews waited anxiously for Messiah to free them politically, we as Americans need to be careful and remember that we could miss the boat too just as they missed the boat on Messiah. Paul, the apostle, talked of himself and he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he realized that he missed the boat when he met God and made Christ. Well, after proving that that Jesus is after proving Jesus is humanity, Matthew discloses the divine origin of, of Jesus Christ uh, as Messiah. And the Messiah was not only human, but but uh, had to be divine also. And verses 18 through 25 that were read earlier show this process of Mary becoming uh, pregnant, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. And again. We see this crazy, radical love that God would send his son in flesh because he loves you and me. Matthew 18 and 19 describe Mary and Joseph's relationship as engaged and as yet not sexually involved. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And when his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to, to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwillingly, uh, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So here we see that the, the story of Mary becoming pregnant through the Spirit of God. And after relating that Mary... Um, had not had sex with, with, uh, with Joseph, the angels revealed Christ's deity by his name and by his purpose. And both Mary and Joseph had, uh, 
conversations, had visits by angels to confirm the birth of Jesus Christ. The angel appeared to, to Joseph in a dream saying, again, this is Matthew 20 through 23, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall, name, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And earlier, of course, Mary had a visit from an angel, and her conversation went something like this. The angel saying to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus. And Mary says, Well, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy One to be born we call the Son of God. It was clear from these passages that Jesus' conception was supernatural, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the passages throughout the Bible, that give, uh, throughout the New Testament rather, that give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark, as he wrote and began his uh, um, gospel story, says, In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark 3, later on, says that whenever the, the impure spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. David Platt, in his book, Radical, communicates what we sometimes miss about Christ when he went to the cross. You can't just picture Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember he sweat tears, drops of blood. And he was in anguish, in agony. But it's not because he was afraid of the crucifixion. It was not because he was trembling of fear of the Roman soldiers about what they're going to do. Many believers, if you look back over history, have seen, we've seen them die for their faith. And some were not just hung on crosses, others were burned. And many others went to their crosses singing. The story of a Christian in India who, while he was being skinned alive, picture this, while being skinned alive, he looked at his persecutors and said to him, to them, I thank you for this. I thank you. Tear off my old garment. For I will soon put on Christ's garment of righteousness. Another, Christopher Love, as he prepared to head for his execution, wrote a, a note to his wife saying, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. Platt goes on and says, Did these men and women have more courage than Jesus Christ? Why was he trembling in the garden and full of anguish? We know again it wasn't because uh, he was a coward, afraid of the soldiers. Instead, it's because he was Savior, 
through the Savior about to endure divine wrath. Listen to his words again. My Father, if it's possible, may this be taken from me. May this cup be taken from me. This cup is not a reference to the wooden cross. It's not a reference to the nails. It's a reference to divine judgment. It's the cup of God's wrath. All of God's holy wrath has been built up towards sin since the beginning of the world. It's about to be poured out on him. He is sweating blood. What happened on the cross was, again, not primarily about nails being thrust into Christ's hands and feet, but about the wrath of God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, God, in the flesh to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who put the trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. What are you and what am I going to do with this Jesus today? We've seen so far that he's the son of David, the Messiah, fully man and yet fully God. In each of these visits to Mary and uh, Joseph, the angel gave instructions about the baby to be named Jesus. In Luke, she says, you know, you are to call him Jesus. In our passage today in Matthew, it says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. For he will save their his, his people from their sin. We see in this that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And by this, I don't mean that Jesus saved every person in the world, but that Christ provided atonement for all who would trust in him. Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. And the name Jesus was a very popular name back in, in uh, the times of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you remember when Christ was crucified on the cross, there were two thieves, and one's name was Jesus Barabbas. But the key part here is not just that his name was Jesus, but that he will save his people from their sins. As I looked at a couple of commentaries, a few commentaries, Several made, made the comment that it was important that it says that he saved his people from their sins. Because again, their mindset of Messiah was that he would come and save them physically, save them politically. But God sent his son not to establish a kingdom politically, but to establish a kingdom Spiritually. Christ alone is qualified to accomplish salvation for the world because he 
is that perfect Lamb of God, without blemish, as required in the Old Testament. Hebrews 9 says that when Christ appeared as the high priest, that he entered once into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We see Jesus as Savior throughout the New Testament. You can quote many of the verses if I were to call on you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I have trouble with that because I learned it in King James and New American Standard and NIV and now ESV. We know John 3.16. We know it so well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is a powerful one. For our sake, he being God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luke 2.11, we know so well. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In 1 John 4.14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I have passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's, that's the gospel. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. How do you and I respond to this gospel again? At times, I feel like our culture has made it so easy to be deceived. And, and can I be honest with you? Can I be totally honest with you personally? As a pastor, as a shepherd, I fear at times that there's someone who sits here in your sanctuary week in and week out who think they have made a decision who have not really trusted Christ. They think they have but they've been deceived. I can't tell you the number of times when someone calls or I see them in person and they say we pray for my uncle, we pray for my brother and I say sure I will and then I ask the question is your uncle or is your father or is your friend, is he saved? Do we need to pray for his salvation? And too often, too often, 
The response is yes. He or she prayed when she was 10 or 12 years old, and, and now you know, she's an adult. And I say, is your friend or is your relative walking with God? And they say, well, no. As I follow through with questions, I ask, did he or she ever have a love for the Word? Was he or she ever hungry to know God? Was, was there something in his, in his life? And, and usually it's no. And yet they go back to this point, 10 or 12 years, when they're 10 or 12 years old, where they pray to prayer. But there was no change. That scares me. It scares me that someone could be here. Jesus, we ask Jesus rather to come into our heart or invite Jesus into our life. But, but what does that mean? It's easy to pray a prayer. It's easy to sign a card. It's easy to walk the aisle. I don't think we find a verse that says that people to bow their heads and close your eyes and repeat after me. Please know, I've done some of these things myself. My point is, I want us to know correctly that we are a child of God. What's the proper response to the gospel? Again, it's more than praying a prayer. It's more than church attendance. It involves unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have as we recognize that we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And God, of course, through His Word and through the Holy Spirit will show us, if we trust Christ, we have no idea how desperate in need we are. We have no idea how depraved we are until the Spirit of God comes into our lives. He'll show that to us. In Matthew chapter 7, Christ is speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You see, Christ wasn't speaking about atheists, or rather speaking to atheists. He wasn't even speaking to agnostics. He was speaking to Pharisees, to these people who were religious leaders. The danger of spiritual deception is very real. Too often we've been told that it's a one-time decision, but yet about being obedient, living for God's glory. And the doctrine of perseverance is so very real, it's so very true. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will persevere. But we don't automatically have a ticket to heaven when we pray a prayer. 
The truth is, they will make a decision to follow Christ, and we yield our lives to Him. Again, we will persevere. Ephesians is so clear on that. But I think the gospel demands and enables us to turn from our sin, to take up our cross, and to die to ourselves, and to follow Christ. Again, hear me. The gospel enables us. It demands a profession, yet it enables. As believers, there's one within us, hopefully, I believe very strongly, for every one of us here today who are child of God, there's within us a deep wrestling, a deep struggle with who we are with the sinfulness of our hearts, with the depth of our depravity, with the desperation of our need. Of course, in Christ we have it all. But God's works in us through His Spirit and through His Word. We're definitely saved by grace. Definitely saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift of God, not of works, but, but that gift, that free gift of grace, involves the gift of a new heart, a new desire, new passion, new longings. I remember when I came to Christ years ago, I'd read the Bible and I got nothing out of it. I didn't want to read it. But I remember when I yielded my life to the Lord in despair. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, invited him into my life, surrendered to him. His spirit came in and he gave me a hunger for his word. He gave me a love for his word. I would sit up until 2 o'clock in the morning studying God's word. Whereas a week or two before, I didn't want anything to do with it. The gift of grace gives us a new heart. New desires, new passions, new longings. For the first time, we want God. We see our need for Him, and we love Him. And we seek Him, and we find Him. That, that should be our response to the gospel. Well, who is this Jesus? He's the Son of David, the Messiah, King of Israel. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. Finally, I want us to look at a fourth term, Christ's name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 121, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In this coronation, of course, uh, in incarnation, God came to earth, the human flesh, to dwell among men. First John, chapter, I'm sorry, John 1, verses 14, 18. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen 
His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Christ, before his death on the cross, said that he would never leave us as orphans. And talked about the fact that he would send his spirit to live within us. It's easy for us to forget the significance of Emmanuel, God with us. Go back, if you will, to Mount Sinai. Moses is ready to go up the mountain and it's there. And if you remember, it's kind of scary, kind of fearful, because there was thunder and lightning. And Christ spoke through the thunder. And God said to Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through the barricades to get a look at God, lest many of them die. And the priest also warned them not to... Warn them to prepare themselves for the holy meeting, lest God break out against them. It was a fearful thing. In Exodus 28, we see instructions to the priest regarding garments and accessories, and it talks about the gold bells and the pomegranates that were to be alternate, alternated around the hem of the robe. And it said, it says, Aaron must wear it when he ministers, the sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, so he will not die. So he will not die. And later on, it's, uh, God gives instructions for them to make linen undergarments for the priest as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. And Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter into the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. We live today with an ease of entering before our Father in heaven. We forget about what it's like before Christ his sacrifice. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Since we have confidence, confidence to enter, We're blessed. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I think the term um, is more of a, a metaphor for who who Christ is as uh, being present with us. I, I like what Grant Osborne uh, from Trinity uh, said. He said that God is present in four ways. God is with us in four ways. 
He said God is present via his Shekinah glory or the dwelling via the pillar of fire and cloud of smoke in the Exodus and his throne in the most high place throughout the Old Testament. He goes on, he says, God is present via his son who is in a sense a walking most holy place during his life on earth. And third, he said God is present through the Holy Spirit during the church age. And fourth, God is present physically and in full reality throughout all eternity. Emmanuel, God with us. We've looked at this man, Jesus. We've seen that he's the son of David, Messiah, the Christ. We've seen that he's the son of God. We've seen that he's the savior of the world, of all those who believe. We've seen that he is Emmanuel, God, with us. David Platt, in his book, Radical, tells a story of a friend who was engaging people in Southeast Asia. Asia. And as he talked with the villagers uh, in one remote, very remote place, he tried to figure out what they knew, what their core beliefs were. And he asked them, he says, how were we created? And they responded, we don't know. And then he asked, who sends rain for the crops? And they responded, we don't know that either. Then he asked, what happens when we die? And they looked back at him and said, no one has come to tell us that either. Soon afterwards, this man left and went to another remote village where they were not believers, not Christians. They were warm. They were hospitable. Um, they invited to share a drink with them. And one man went to a small shop. He came back with a classic red Coke can. And at that point, this missionary was immediately hit with the reality that that soft drink company in Atlanta, Georgia, had done a better job of getting its brown sugar water around the world to remote areas than we in the body of Christ, we in the church, had done in getting Jesus Christ and salvation through him. Well, Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Today, if you've never began that walk with Christ, if you've never surrendered your life, if you've never called out to him for forgiveness of sins, if you've never repented, if you recognize you need a Savior, now's the time. Now's the time to develop that relationship with the Lord. It's not inviting Christ to walk along you in your journey and following you where you want to go. But it's, in, it's following Him. 
in his journey going wherever he wants to go. Christ died and rose again so that we can forget about everything else and follow him. Today, as we look toward Christmas, we remember the Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, Jesus, Emmanuel. God has poured his love out upon us. If we haven't trusted Christ, today's the day. But a question for us as believers who become very comfortable is what? What are we going to do? You know, I, I, Josh will tell you I'm from Alabama. He likes my Alabama tie. It's not really. I came from Alabama 28 years ago. And I promise you it was a step of faith. Because I was raised around cornfields. I had a fear of Chicago. And once I got here, though, I loved the people. And many of you are still here today. It took faith to leave rural Alabama and come to Chicago. I had pictures of Chicago. And what, they weren't good. It's home now. It's home. I love it. I love you. But you see, we can become complacent. We can forget the gospel. We can spend our money on things and our time on gadgets rather than spreading the gospel. God calls us at this time to reconsider who this Jesus is. Reconsider our walk with God and join Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, you are truly a gracious God. You have poured your love out upon us. Your love, Father, that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. Lord, it's crazy, it's radical. Father, help us to respond appropriately to the gospel. Lord, help us to not be comfortable. Help us, Father, to to not sit back and coast, but to follow you and your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the, um, the, um,